Welcome to Tips from the Server Room. This podcast is designed for all you systems admins, network specialists, or the guys and gals out there in the office who handles it all. Sit back, relax, grab a beverage, and enjoy Tips from the Server Room. Hey, yes, welcome back, everybody, once again to Tips from the Server Room. This is episode number 130 for April the 14th, 2018. Once again, I'm your host, Jack, and I'm going to help guide you into, through, and back out of the world of systems administration, network administration, and all fields of IT. Please check out my website if you have a minute, and I hope that you do. That is at tipsfromtheserverroom.com. You can comment on these shows, and you can also leave me some feedback, and I always appreciate that and those efforts on your part. If you have any questions or ideas for future shows, please email me, and you can email me at jack at tipsfromtheserverroom.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, and many of you have uh, done that, and you still uh, do that, and I appreciate you following me on Twitter, and as at technoman. Please remember that these shows are also recorded into a video, and that video is posted on my YouTube site at 4-2-Technoman, the number 4, the number 2, Technoman. You can also search for Jack's Tech Corner, and I believe you'll find the videos just fine there. And I did actually create a playlist for tips from the server room, so it's very easy to find all of the videos I had somebody email me a few weeks ago and said, look, Jack, there's a problem because I go to your channel and there's Photoshop uh, elements videos and photography videos. And, well, I also teach photography online and I also teach uh, Photoshop elements online. So I've been doing that for years, uh, even though I've been a, you know, the computer guy uh, for the past, geez, probably 25, at least 25, almost 30 years now. Uh, in the computer business, one way or the other. And, um, you know, so I kind of joined both of those together. I I did at one time create separate channels, YouTube channels. And if you're a YouTuber, you understand that it does get a little cumbersome at best, I guess, where, you know, you have to try to get all these different uh, videos and shows up there and know where to post them. My primary two channels right now is 4-2 Technoman or Jack's Tech Corner. And if you're a motorcycle buff, and um, many of you probably could be, right? You could ride motorcycles. You might want to check out my videos at Harley Day Rider. That is my YouTube channel, Harley Day Rider. Uh, I've been posting videos on there now, motorcycle videos for at least, I think this is, I think I'm going into my third year. So there's a ton of video content on there if you'd like to watch that uh, about riding and and uh, trips that we've done. We took a trip last summer out to Wyoming, uh, out through Sturgis, South Dakota, uh, the Badlands. There's a ton of videos on there you might want to watch. They're very entertaining. And I have to tell my wife, it's funny because when you do a video such as this, uh, or you know, you do a podcast based around information, learning, something people need to know, they tend to do extremely um, less views. Uh, extremely, let's say even more poor than the entertainment type videos I do with the motorcycle videos. So um, 
just can't get this mic to sit right today. I don't know why, what this is here. But yeah, so they tend to do less. And I believe more and more people watch YouTube for entertainment purposes. And uh, it's funny now because when somebody comes over, she goes, hey, have Jack tell you about, you know, uh, how his training videos do, his Photoshop videos, as opposed to his motorcycle videos. And uh, the motorcycle videos, as far as total views, always, always wins out. Uh, and it's funny with the YouTube channels because the 4-2 Tecto Man has over 20,000 subscribers, but then you'll get like, you know, um, you might get like 100 views on some of them. And it's funny because some of them have, um, you know, 100,000 views uh, on some of my videos on YouTube, but you only have 20,000 subscribers. So I don't know how you relate subscribers to um, – to views or, you know, and I don't know if people want to be entertained, um, you know, and, and I can't really take tips from the server room and make it entertaining as far as like I'm not going to tell jokes or some corny stuff uh, about servers and networks and switches, you know. It, it just doesn't make good quality sense to me to do that. So let me first start out, and I forgot to put this in my show notes. Google started, and I heard this actually on another podcast, and I thought, you know, I'm going to give this a try. Google started an IT uh, course, an IT – it's basically – it looks like it's so far um, – I would say it's like an associate's level course, but it's concerning all things IT. And you know, I, I have my Windows Server courses, of course, uh, that I teach, and that is just strictly about Windows Server and the certain version I teach. But the course that they are teaching, uh, we started out with uh, you know, the history of computing. Of course, you have to start with the history before you go forward. And then we started um, with uh, software. Well, no. Then we started with components, um, a backup event. Then we started with, with – before that, we even had uh, binary code, uh, how to convert binary to digital numbers uh, or decimal numbers. So it's been extremely good. It's been a great course so far. Uh, the course will last you 8 to 12 months depending on how hard you hit the lessons. That's going to be the big thing on your part. And But search for it. It's Google IT. Um, what is it? Google IT. You know what? As I'm talking here, we're going to look this up real quick uh, to be sure what it's called. Google IT. It's Google IT Support Professional Certificate is what it's called. And they teach it with a company called Corsica, C-O-U-R-S-E-R-A. But if you first go to Google's website, um, let me see here. But there's a catch. I don't know what this one is either. I'm going to read that. Um, so anyway, the thing is there's definitely a, a great way to get involved with this course. And um, I was fortunate enough or lucky enough to actually be able to do this was they do offer a scholarship and the scholarships are based around um, not really a whole lot because they don't really ask you a lot of your like financial information. They don't ask you to fill out like a FAFSA report here, you know, uh, with the government to see if you can get government money or anything. What they're doing is just looking who you are, basically why you want to take the course and how you think this course will uh, advance you in life or in a career. So I thought, you know what, it never hurts, and I tell you folks out there, it never hurts to take more and more training. And uh, even though, you know, uh, my lifetime and going through college years ago, 
Uh, it's nice to get a refresher on stuff like binary code, uh, hardware, bus systems, and whatnot. So again, check that out, the, IT, uh, the Google IT uh, support certificate, and uh, see what you think about that. And, you know, like I said, if you, if you want to, by all means, subscribe or fill out the, uh, the scholarship. And they do ask you to write – there's two 100 and – a minimum 150-word essays. You got – not really an essay. You have to write basically up – the first one you have to write up is um, why you, know, you believe that you, um, you're eligible for, for a, a free course. And the next one would be 150 words of how is this going to advance you in life. Uh, but once you complete the courses, and this is good for a lot of folks out there just getting into technology, once you complete these courses and say you you don't know which way to turn and you don't know if you want to go back to a full-time college for this, Google actually has certain companies out there that will work with you to uh, place you in a job in many, many, many different cities around the United States. And I don't know around the world, but uh, so far seeing the students in there, there are students in there from all over the world. So. Something to check out. Uh, it's very interesting so far, and uh, you know, it, it never hurts to have more training. Uh, you guys know that, like I said, I teach Windows Server uh, online at jtclearning.com, and I've been doing that for years. Um, I've been teaching, you know, uh, in in class stuff, you know, about networking and switches and for years. But it's always good to get refreshed. So with that said, let's talk a little bit today. Uh, we're going to start our conversation today about network documentation. Now, as a technologist or as a technician, none of us, or even as a network administrator, none of us really can say 100%. You can't tell me, and don't sit there shaking your head and say, yeah, Jack, I can. You cannot tell me that you love documentation. The world of computing and the world of network administration and the world of server administration is all about doing, right? We are the doers. We're people that want to go in there, correct the issues, correct the problems, and we want to take care of something and fix it. We don't always want to sit down and document it. And one of the folks I work with actually last week, I was talking to uh, this the one person, and I said um, – she was saying something about how she forgot from last year what she did to uh, recreate it this year. And I said, well, do you document anything? And she looked at me and said, I don't have time for documentation. But what you will find – and what's funny about this whole thing is people say they don't have time for documentation, but then they have time to waste four hours trying to figure it out again. If you took an hour and documented it when you did it, and then when you go to redo that same task, guess what? Now you just saved four hours of heart, you know, heartache and hardship trying to figure it out again. All you got to do is look back at your documentation. Now, there's some really great documenting tools out there. And the first one, a lot of you know, and as I'm doing these show notes today from, is uh, my old buddy Evernote. I've been using Evernote since I met these people at a conference when they were just a small team, I think there was maybe three programmers starting this thing. And now I'm, I'm sure they're very big, you know, very large company. But, you know, it was it was a very uh, infant type project. It was, uh, you know, there was not much to it at that time, more than uh, basically a notepad with a database back end. And it would kind of, you know, keep your notes. And now it really grew into something fantastic. 
And Evernote, and they're not a sponsor to the show, folks. I only promote things on this show that I use, stuff that I use, stuff that I understand, and things that I can tell you that either A, they work, or B, they're awful, right? So, But Evernote, I find that I can go in there and I basically create notebooks. And in those notebooks, such as um, at, at the school, I'll have a notebook called Network Switches. And in Network Switches, I'll have everything in there I need to know about programming the switches, updating the switches, uh, you know, updating their uh, their ISOs, and doing all that work with the switches, even uh, programming VLANs. And, and then what I do is when I put something in there, I'll simply give it a tag as switch. So that way I can just search in my Evernotes for a tag called switch, and I get every note no matter where it is in Evernote. So that's a great, great tool to have. So Evernote does work. And I know a lot of you are saying, well, Jack, Evernote used to be free across any device. And that's true. But, you know, as a company business model, you think of your company. If you gave your services away free across the board to everyone, how long would you be in business, right? You wouldn't be in business very long. So Evernote changed their business structure and said, look, the free version, you can sync it between two devices, and you pick whichever two. They don't care. It could be an iPad in your desktop, your desktop in your laptop, your laptop, maybe your phone. And they allow you to do that perfectly well for free. But I I pay for, I think mine's called the basic version. I, I bought the premium version the first year I paid for it for whatever that was, $80 or $90 for the year. And I didn't seem to use all the features. So I said, look, the following year I put it on my calendar and I scaled back to the basic version. The basic version I think I might pay like $39 a year. But this way I'm giving the company money for development. I use their tool every single day. Uh, it's always open on my computer no matter which computer I'm using. I have it open. And it allows me to sync between all those different devices. Now, there is a way, and I'm going to tell you there is there's a way to use the free version across all your devices. All you have to do is simply access Evernote through the website, and their website has, has become extremely good. I was shocked how great, and I'll tell you a little bit about that further in the show today, but I was super shocked how great that their Evernote web client is almost identical to the desktop as functionality, and it works really, really well. So you do have that option, but I do like all the apps. I like the, you know the i um, the iPhone app, the iPad app, uh, Android app. It, it, well, the Android app is so so. Um, I, I did play with that last week. All right, I'm not a big Android guy. A lot of you know that. Um, I'm, I lean more towards the Apple uh, realm and the Windows realm um, and uh, the Chrome OS realm, but I don't do a whole lot of Android stuff. So I had a chance to play with it a little bit, and I found it to be a little quirky, uh, a little bit more quirky, I guess, than even the iPad version. The iPad version works pretty well. So that's one route that you can take. Now, if you are – I don't even think you have to be now. I don't think you have to be an Office 365 subscriber to use OneNote. OneNote is basically a Evernote competitor, and Microsoft created OneNote, and people swear by it. We have techs that we work with, and we have system engineers that we work with. Um, our company primarily is a Microsoft shop, uh, Microsoft 365 and all the tools. So they are very in touch with, with OneNote, and they love it. It works very well. I played with it a little while when I was thinking of getting rid of Evernote, 
And I was thinking, look, I'm going to get rid of Evernote, and I'm going to just go ahead and start using OneNote because it's free, and I can use it across all my devices. But there's that thing called the learning curve, and when you have to learn something or when you have to work with a learning curve, what tends to happen is you lose productivity time. And I don't like to lose productivity time trying to fumble with notes. Maybe if I started with OneNote years ago when it started or however long, it maybe when did it come along? Two or three years ago, maybe four uh, at the tops. If I would have started with it and maybe never used Evernote and how Evernote functions, you know, my whole life is in Evernote for years. I got stuff in here from years ago. And yes, I probably need to do some house cleaning, but it's cool to go back and look at some of those notes you wrote up. Like when I was a programmer, all my programming notes are in there. So if I ever want to go back to programming, I have a lot of my code in Evernote. So I can go back and pull out snippets of code that I may need to reuse. And I, that's why I hate to delete that kind of stuff. But OneNote is a tool. It's a good tool. There's a web-based uh, version. There is pretty much a client from everything I've seen that works on every device that you would have. So it's another great document documenting tool for network documentation. Now... <clears throat> the next thing we want to talk about or touch upon a little bit is spreadsheets. And spreadsheets kind of go into the fact of uh, the same part of networking. Or, or Now, we're talking about network documentation. I'm not really at this point talking about server documentation, database documentation, uh, workflow documentation. We started doing a lot of that at work now, documenting all of our workflows. And, and it has streamlined our, our life. And, and we talked about that in a past show one day. And I told you that it's actually um, produced a, a better team because now we have just a, just a quick set standards way to do things. We don't have to fumble around and go from step one to step eight to step three to step you know seven back to step two. We just go one, two, three, four, five, and we're done. It's block diagrams. It's a piece of cake. So network documentation or network switches we're talking about right now, uh, or you know your your MDFs and your IDFs, right? So on these networking gear, this networking gear, we have many many ports, we have many many VLANs. You can have a lot of stacks of switches, folks. And I don't know how many stacks you have. Our normal stack at the school levels is no more than two, uh, which gives us what is that? That's ninety six ports. Yeah, 48, yeah, 96 ports is our normal stack. Uh, some companies may stack, you know, and have um, six, seven thousand ports, depending on what you may need in your business. But when you walk in there and, you know, if you have everything VLAN out, now if everything's a flat network, you can just plug in anywhere and it's going to work just fine. But if you're VLAN out and you have your virtual LAN set up on different ports or you have different ports, you know, that's programmed for nothing, uh, a lot of times I like to shut ports down that's not being used, and that way I bring them up when I need them. But what I did was I took a spreadsheet, and on the first column, write every port down you have. So on ours with Extreme Networking or even with Cisco, you would do like uh, 1 colon 1, you know, 1 colon 2, 1 colon 3, 1 colon 4 for all your ports going down. And then the very next column have in there what patch it goes to on your switch panel. And I know you can always grab the wire and you can follow the wire up and see where it plugs into. But, you know, that's that's not the way to do things. The reason we want to document is if you are going to work and, you know, well, we, we pray that this never happens. You get hit by a train on the way to work. 
we want somebody to pick up your documentation and we want somebody to be able to look at that documentation and go, oh, okay, well, oh, man, he did a nice job or she did a nice job. Here's Porto. You know, we have a, a printer that's not getting a networking connection. We look at the sheet and find that printer's wall jack is connected to port, you know, 1 colon 9. We can go and we can even tell what switch that's on because I have each individual switch on a separate spreadsheet. Um, all created into one book. So if you've ever used Excel, you know there's there's basically a, a one sh one spreadsheet is a spreadsheet. Multiple spreadsheets can be considered an Excel book, right? Because you have multiple pages, and each page is is the name of the switch. Now with that name, put in there the IP address. I find this to very be very useful because if I'm going to SSH into that switch, I now have the IP. I don't have to fumble around and try to figure out what the IP is. It works very, very well, and I can tell you there's a little trick to this. So if you have your laptop and you have a spreadsheet program, say let's say you're using LibreOffice, for instance. Maybe you like LibreOffice. Many people do, and it's a great program. I haven't used it for years. I'm sure it's even better than when I used it. So you have LibreOffice Sheets or whatever you have it open, and that's what you're using. That's fine. It'll work fine. What I'm not sure about Libra Sheets from LibreOffice is do those sheets – are those sheets available online? And the reason I ask that is I tend to use, believe it or not, being a, an, an Apple kind of guy, I use numbers from, from uh, Apple. Apple has a program called Numbers. Uh, they, that program is very nice because I, I have it on my iPad, on my phone, and again on the computer and the web interface. There's a web interface for the iApps, the iCloud apps. And my workflow just works very well with that app. It will also work if you're using Microsoft Excel because you have Office 365 on the web, which it will be there. You can have a, a client for any, pretty much any operating system you want to use it on, Windows or Mac. And you can also have that on your iPad. And you can also have um, the uh, Excel on, your, on your, either your iOS device or Android device as far as that goes. This is very nice because the other day I walked into one of our closets and I was thinking, oh man, I didn't bring my laptop over. How can I find this patch? And I thought, wait, I, I always have my phone on me. I pulled my phone out of my pocket and I brought up my, my, my spreadsheet on my phone. I, you know, It's a smaller screen, but it worked. I worked, walked across to the, the page I needed for that particular closet, opened it, found the port number and said, oh, that's where it's plugged into right there. I, and I found exactly where I was. So without having your computer with you, if you have your phone, then you're good to go. If you're using a, you know, one of the, the sheets programs or Excel or accounting pro, I don't know what you would refer to that as. But if you're using one of those programs, you have a way to carry that around with you. And it just makes total sense to do that. So have one there, like I said, your port number. The next thing we have on there is the patch number. So when we're in the room, we see the patches labeled. And I hope you're labeling everything in your network. Uh, when we started in the school that I'm in now, things were labeled uh, on the wall jacks, and a lot of times they weren't labeled in the rack. So that kind of throws you off a little bit. Um, sometimes they were labeled on the wall jack, and it was labeled wrong in the in the in the switch rack. So you have to get everything consistent labeled. But then when you go to your switch rack and you say, "Oh, there it is," you know, um, port number. Whatever our ports are like V for for voice, D for data, uh, C for cameras, 
And uh, uh, yeah, I think that's it. D, pretty sure that's it. Uh, no, an S for security because there's security door locks and whatnot. So we have those. So say it's it's V29. I'm going to say V29 goes to that port of the switch. So I know that should be on the, the phone VLAN. Very simple to do, but you have to document. It took me almost, well, when I started at the school a year and a half ago, um, my current assignment where I'm located at now, it took almost a year to get everything to the point where I was comfortable knowing where everything was plugged in at. And you still find wires because as a network person, and I always say, every networking out there does things to make things work. We are solution providers. That's what we do for a living. Sometimes, sometimes you'll find people will, for whatever reason, have a network cable that's not quite long enough to where they want to go. So they take a little five-port unmanaged switch. They'll plug it in up in the ceiling. And then what they'll do is they'll come down into that uh, switch in that little five port switch and they'll they'll jump that so they'll like make like an extension from that so it's you know people do weird things but you have to figure that out it's going to take you a while in your network and if you do have that document it somewhere because if again if that train hits you on the way to work you want somebody to know where that switch is you know you don't want to don't want to get rid of that so all right uh, the drawings part of it, you know, drawing, it all depends what kind of camp you're in. The Visio camp, which I tend to use Visio now because we have the ESS agreement for our school district, so I can get Visio uh, as part of our volume licensing, and I can use Visio legally that way. I used to be a big fan for years of SmartDraw. SmartDraw got to the point now where it's kind of outpriced itself, and I can't really have the school district pay for it, even though I think it's a easier program to use because I'm more familiar with it. That's all it is. I'm not super familiar with Visio, but Visio works for some network drawings. When you have your drawings, don't have a fiber cable going from a from an IDF to your MDF and just show it's connected to the MDF because that's not going to tell you anything. And basically what I'm saying is, so you have you know a, a picture of your MDF and then you have a picture of your IDF your uh, one or 10 gig fibers coming across and it's going, you know, it's going back to the MDF. That's a technology thing. We know where it goes. Show me on, show me on the core switch, what port it's plugged into. That's the key. Because if I need to do anything with that fiber, I need what port it's in. I don't need to know that it plugs into that box. That, that doesn't make any sense. So make sure you label stuff like that. It's very, very critical to do that. The drawings, as far as like <clears throat> if a cable's going from your IDF to one of your rooms or one of your offices, you could put in there what port it's going to, but also you'll have your spreadsheet to follow up on the back end of that. So, you know, always document your network. And I listened to a guy <clears throat> not long ago. I can't remember. I can't recall his name. I'm sorry about that. But he told me <clears throat> what he likes to do, excuse me, what he likes to do is very simply, he really likes to take uh, spreadsheets of that nature. And if he has time, put them at the IDF or put them at the MDF on, you know, on your wiring closet, on the wall. Because like he said, and I never really thought about this. If you have a phone guy come in, say you have a phone guy come in or somebody come in for, for your, a network, an internet connection or 
and they don't know where they're plugged into, it would be really nice if you're not available to have that there, that information there for that person. And they can say, wow, there's a, really a networking person here that really cares about other networking people. It's very, very important. But you will have people, and I've met people over my life, that will not document because if I document it, they can fire me tomorrow and somebody can take all my work that I did, and then they, they don't have to do it themselves. You know what? That's a lot of BS. If a company is going to fire you, they are going to fire you. They don't care what you have. They don't care what you did. And you know what? That's just life, right? That's just life. Or if you're going to get laid off, uh, that's that's happened to me where, you know, I've done all this work. I created all this stuff. Uh, a company came in and said, we could do it cheaper than he can do it. And somebody believed them, you know, because somebody believed their BS and they took them on. And what happened was they found out now that they're paying them $200,000 more a year than what they paid in in-house staff. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Uh, you know, karma will always kick in the ass. That's what they say. But uh, they had all of our documentation. We did all the hard work over, you know, over many, many years, over 13 years. We did the hard work. Then somebody will walk in and just take over your role and you'll be gone. So, uh, so don't ever think I'm not going to document because somebody will take my job. It doesn't really matter. Um, you know, when I took over a job years ago, I walked into a place where there was a technologist that was let go because he wasn't doing a good job. And I said, did anybody ask the person for the passwords? And they told me, no. So I had to go in and recreate the Windows servers and, you know, dig around and crack passwords and anything can be done. So don't ever secure a network thinking they're going to let you go and, and you're going to get back at them because forget it. It's not going to happen. Hey, real quick, I want to let you know that the uh, my official week ended with the Chromebook experience. The Chromebook I was using, and if you read, if you go over to jackstechcorner.com, I have every day in there listed what I did with the Chromebook, what I found was interesting with it, um, what I you know found that was very helpful. But as a network, as a technology director, network administrator, could you use a Chromebook only? for your tasks and to be honest with you as much as i've seen absolutely you could it's not a big deal i would recommend if you do buy a chromebook to buy one of the mid-range ones the one i've been looking at if i bought one uh would be the asus i think it's the 30 302ca i think is what it's called um, either that one or a lot of people say the samsung mid-range chromebook for like 480 bucks i don't know the model number they also say that's a very good one. And the reason I say it is because after using the Chromebook, the Dell 3380 for a week, I noticed that the screen was not as clear as I would like it to be. And I spent a lot of time looking at the screen, obviously, because I used it every single day. I did hook it to an external monitor, which the monitors always looked really brilliant and nice. So the resolution it can pump out is good. But naturally, when you buy something cheaper, they got to cut price somewhere, so they you lose on the screen resolution uh, for the laptop itself. The next part, ah, sorry, I thought I had a sneeze. The next part was the um, uh, the uh, keyboards. The keyboards are the same way. So the keyboard was kind of like bangy or squishy or whatever you want to say. Is it? It wasn't nice and solid. It wasn't nice travel. But again, you're looking at a more inexpensive. Chromebook. So so anyway, with that said, uh, the, the experiment for the Chromebook 
for that for the week was really really good. I did find a program that was cool because I was looking for a program where I have a USB to serial connector, and I know many of you guys out there play have one of those. And I plugged it in the Chromebook, and I thought, how can I get a driver to use this thing? Well, there is a program out there called Beagle Term, like like the dog Beagle Term. And Beagle Term is basically a Chrome extension that opens up in, in the in the Chrome browser, and it interacts with your hardware. So I was able to click on it, click on the USB connection. I hit my firewall, boom, I was in serial connection, and it works absolutely flawlessly. So look that up, Beagle Term. It's a great, great program. It will also work on any device, uh, as far as I've seen, because I have used it on my Mac laptop as well as a Windows laptop. So it does work on, on any device. Uh, it's a great program there. The uh, the Chromebook, as I said, if you follow, if you look at jackstechcorner.com, you will find that the – and I think I talked about this a little bit last week. But the adding of the Android applications on there, I told my wife that they just changed the entire landscape of the Chromebook. They just made the Chromebook a laptop, and it's a very inexpensive laptop. And I have to say, and you guys know that I teach Microsoft, I you know – I teach, you know, all this Windows Server stuff. I teach Microsoft Office at work. And I'm also a Mac guy. And, I, you know, I love my Macs for all my uh, creation, my creative self, my Mac stuff, right? Uh, such as this podcast and the video of them creating. All my YouTube videos for my motorcycle videos are created on my Macs. So for creativity and even professional work, I do like the Mac. It works very, very well. But for an inexpensive Chromebook, guys, look out because Google is coming for you. Google is coming directly at Microsoft, and they're coming directly at uh, Apple. I don't think they're coming after the hardware manufacturers because they bundled those hardware manufacturers in. Because you could buy HP Chromebooks, Dell Chromebooks, Lenovo Chromebooks. Uh, every manufacturer out there is building a Chromebook. Samsung is even in the game. So they're not going after the hardware people, but they are doing what Bill Gates did back in the – what was that? The the 70s, the 80s, right in that area where you know he went to IBM and said, look, I'll license this to you. You put on your hardware, and he made billions, right? So it's something to think about. Uh, there is some little quirky things with the Chromebook that I didn't like. One is if you want to do any video editing – uh, I was going to buy one to take on my next motorcycle trip. If you want to do any video editing with, with a Chromebook, you're going to have to make sure you have a good internet connection. And most hotels do not because what happens is when you're putting your video in, it will load it locally. But if you use a program called WeVideo, and you can use that again on any computer, WeVideo.com, that actually works um, – Online. So what happens is when you're doing your projects, they're getting uploaded as you're editing them. So you'd have to have a good internet connection. And I still like just basic if I'm on the road, the basic stuff I use, I have a – I think it's 11.5-inch Lenovo, very small little laptop that I throw in the motorcycle. And I'll sit in a hotel room at night and edit my videos with uh, Movie Maker. It works. Uh, I am on the Mac. I'm kind of a Final Cut Pro guy. I like Final Cut Pro. I understand it. It's easy to use. But on Windows, you know, I'm not going to buy any special software. I just use Movie Maker, and it still works today, so that's fine. Podcasting on a Chromebook can be done. If you're doing recording, doing audio on the Chromebooks, it can be done. But my biggest experiment, honestly, 
the only two reasons I did that was um, was video editing and photo editing is not the greatest at best. I mean, not what I'm used to. As I told you, I teach Photoshop Elements online. Uh, I teach Lightroom, and uh, you know I've done some Photoshop work. Those programs allow me to do a lot with my photography work and my photos. So doing anything less than that is really hard for me to do. And then again, you're uploading your photos, and then you're editing with, with like this mediocre editor in a Chromebook. But my biggest thing with the Chromebook experiment, honestly, was to see if a technologist can use it in and out every day of the week. And I believe these things will be fine for anybody to use. If you do any kind of day-to-day -day work, you know, you're doing presentations, you're doing – because let's face it, with the uh, Office 365 is what I recommend to use because the Android Word and the Android PowerPoint and the Android Excel don't work as good or as, as half as good as what the online versions do. But with those, you can create anything you want and, and always have it with you. So do you need to spend you know $1,200 for a Mac? Do you need to spend $1,200 for a Surface uh, Book or a Surface uh, Pro? Probably not. Probably not. These things are coming, man. They're, they're coming up fast. And, you know, but like I said, buy a quality mid-range one. All right. The last thing I have for you, this podcast is getting a little long this week, and I didn't think I'd even be this long-winded, is uh, the, a tool of the week. And the tool of the week that I found, and I, and I don't think I've ever reported this to you, is a program called from Wise Software, W-I-S-E, Wise Software, and it is their password manager. And it's absolutely free. There is a little nag screen on there. Like when you first launch it, it's going to say – it's going to count down. I think it's five or six seconds. But what happens after that five or six seconds, it just opens up and it works. If you register it for free, they just want to know who's using their products out there. Put your email address in there. They give you the registration code. Plug it in and then, and then it just opens. But what is nice about it, I use it all the time for bulk password changing because we have a whole group of uh, students, especially if you're in schools. Students will come in and maybe they all can't log in and I have to get them in very quickly. So I can grab my whole entire OU and say, make it this password. Click. Boom. They're done in like two seconds. Absolutely fine. It also allows single password changing. So if you want to give somebody else the ability to change passwords in your in your organization, you can do that. And we've had done that with some computer lab teachers where we give them certain rights where they can open this application, type in Johnny's username. They can change Johnny's password, but they can't change teacher's or administrator's passwords. So it, it's very secure that way, and it works very, very well. It also allows you to change all the property items I found this week because I was able to set the passwords and say never expire or you can tell it to uh, you know create a password and shut it down in three days or whatever you want to do. It works very, very well. Okay, folks, so I am going to wrap this week up. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and downloading to this show. If you are watching these on YouTube, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Please give it a thumbs up so I know people are enjoying the videos, and it also helps to raise it in the ratings. Never hurts. Uh, spread the word around a little bit. Tell people about tips from the server room and say, hey, look, there's a, there's a podcast out there you can listen to You know, when you're driving to work. Uh, or you can put the video on at lunchtime and kick back and just watch this guy named, you know, this guy Jack talk about you know, different stuff about servers or networks or switches and whatever else comes along. Uh, I do appreciate all those efforts. 
Folks, if you want to buy anything from Amazon, and we all buy from Amazon, let's face it. We have a local mall right now getting ready to shut down uh, at the end of this year or the mid this year, I think, maybe June or July. The mall will be gone. I've been telling people this for years. The malls will be gone. And it's just simple math. It's just simple ways of doing things. And I did it years ago. I would go to the camera shop. I'd pick up a camera. I'd hold it. I'd look at it. And, oh, they're really nice. How much is it? $1,200. Huh. I'd come back, go online, go to B&H Photo Video in New York City, and I'd buy it online for $800. So that's why the brick-and-mortar stores are going away. Now, B&H Photo Video is still a brick-and-mortar store, but they got a high presence of online sales. Just like Amazon, right? So if you buy anything from Amazon, I want you to put it in your in your basket. Go to tipsonserverroom.com, click on my link, and then go back and check out. That helps this show out because I got these these all these fees to pay. This hosting fee I got to keep paying. Uh, my internet fees to to pump this out into your house or into your car and get this uh, great podcast out there to you. And whatever else comes along but all the money goes back into the equipment for the show or supporting the show's needs and i really do appreciate you doing that and all your efforts thank you so much once again and i will talk to you next week right here at tips from the server room bye for now everybody You just listened to Tips from the Server Room with your host, Jack. If you have any questions, please drop me a comment at tipsfromtheserverroom.com. Thanks again for tuning in and downloading the shows. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the remainder of the music. We'll see you next week on Tips from the Server Room. So long. <laughs>